If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. This time I'd like to talk about the new Ray Bradbury Review which is a journal that I edit, and its origins. It's published by the Ray Bradbury Centre, formerly known as the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, and there's a curious backstory to it, a curious ancestry, if you like. In revealing that ancestry today, we'll learn about Ray's friend, the author William F. Nolan, and about his one-shot fan publication, titled simply Ray Bradbury Review from 1952, and about the founding of the Ray Bradbury Centre. First of all, let's take a look at Ray Bradbury Review. This came out in 1952, and it's a 64-page fanzine or fan publication. And you could have bought a copy of it back in the day, by simply sending 50 cents to the publishers in San Diego. The publisher was William F. Nolan, and he was also the editor of the review. People who haven't read Ray Bradbury Review, but have just heard of it, often assume that it was a recurring fanzine. But it wasn't. It was just a one-off. And it's very explicitly stated in Ray Bradbury Review, that although it is the first in a series, it's not a series looking at Bradbury. It is, and I quote, a proposed series devoted to the life and works of outstanding writers in science fiction and fantasy. Each issue is to honour one or more professional authors in the field bringing together various articles on their life and career, plus little-known facts regarding their works and including, for ready reference, a complete index of their stories. It goes on to say that this is a test issue. If it succeeds, the second in the series will follow. So if this series had continued, we might have seen a Robert Heinlein review, or a Theodore Sturgeon review, or a Henry Cutner review. But as far as I know, no subsequent editions ever appeared. If anyone knows different, please let me know. So all we have is Ray Bradbury Review. And the table of contents is quite interesting for this. It has three articles by Bradbury himself, one in which he basically recounts his experiences as a young writer. There's an article of his on science and science fiction, and one that he wrote called Where Do You Get Your Ideas? And Ray Bradbury Review also includes one story from Bradbury, although it's a reprint 
of a story that previously appeared in a magazine. The rest of the publication is made up of articles about Bradbury and his work, and they're by various authors, some of whom are not really known today, but some of whom do still have something of a reputation in the history of the science fiction and fantasy field. So, for example, there's an article by Anthony Boucher, who was a renowned mystery writer and also the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. There's an article by Henry Cutner, again a famous writer in his day and a friend and a mentor to Ray Bradbury. And one other contributor is Chad Oliver, a science fiction writer who came to prominence in the 1950s. And William F. Nolan himself contributes an article too. But then a substantial part of Ray Bradbury Review is what Nolan calls the Ray Bradbury Index. And this is his attempt to catalogue all of Ray's books, his short stories, his appearances in anthologies, radio and TV adaptations, and so on. Let's now take a closer look at some of the content of this unique publication. The first article of note is Bradbury's article, Magic, Magicians, Carnival and Fantasy. And here Ray gives us his familiar Mr. Electrico anecdote, which became a staple of his public appearances and almost every interview that he ever gave. What's possibly notable about this telling of the Electrico story is that this is one of the earliest to be captured, and therefore the one that's least likely to have been embroidered. Towards the end of Bradbury's life, he had told the Mr. Electrico story so many times that it was obvious that it was embellished. There were parts that he had developed to generate a laugh, for example, and parts which were clearly dramatic. In this same article, Ray talks about his approach to writing generally, and he includes some of his early failures as a writer, which he blames on, and I quote, using familiar plot, stock characters, and a predictable climax. And he goes on to say, It was only when I learned to write from my own experience that my stories began to shape themselves with some degree of originality. This is one of the earliest published pieces where Bradbury talks about the importance of not trying to slant a story. That's his term, slanting a story. Shaping a story towards the needs of a particular magazine, for example. Instead, he believed that he needed to tell stories which are, in his words, felt and emotionally experienced. He thought it was important for his stories to reflect his feelings. That would produce good stories, he thought, and then it would be a matter of just finding somewhere to publish those stories. This is something that Ray spoke about elsewhere. It's in various essays, various interviews. But because this was so early in his career, this article is actually of historical significance. Remember that in 1952, when Ray Bradbury Review was published, Ray had only had two books out, Dark Carnival and The Martian Chronicles. So those are the only two that he can draw upon at this point. He finishes the article with an overview of what his next works are going to be. And one of them, he says, is a book based upon his hometown in Illinois in the year 1928. 
and that, of course, will turn out to be Dandelion Wine, which took about another five years to come out. He also refers to The Fireman, and how he is extending that for Doubleday, the publishers. And here's the interesting bit. He says The Fireman is to be included in a book with nine or ten other stories. What's interesting about that is that when he did expand The Fireman, and it became Fahrenheit 451, of course, the first book editions of Fahrenheit contained two or three additional short stories. I did a video about this for my Bradbury 101 YouTube series, and in that, the clickbait headline that I came up with was Fahrenheit 451, this is not a novel. And what I was referring to there is the fact that the first edition of Fahrenheit 451 wasn't a novel. It was a collection because it contained Fahrenheit 451, the short novel, plus two or three other short pieces. Later editions of Fahrenheit 451 dropped those short stories. And so Fahrenheit did appear as a short novel, self-contained, standing on its own two feet. Ray also mentions his plan to do a short novel about Mexico, and that would have combined some of his existing short pieces, such as The Next in Line, but that book never came to be. And he also describes another planned book simply as one about modern man living today. And I'm not entirely sure what that book is, or would have been. I can only assume that he's referring to The Illustrated Man because that is about modern life, although it also has some futuristic pieces as well. Anyway, this article is a really good introduction to where Bradbury came from and where he is in 1952. Ray Bradbury Review then continues with a biographical sketch written by a third party and an opinion piece written by another. And then comes Anthony Boucher's article, which is called Ray Bradbury, Beginner, in which Boucher talks about Bradbury evolving as a writer. And he says, quote, It brought me up with something of a start to realise that as recently as 1940, Bradbury was the rankest of amateurs, turning out conventional trash that would not induce an editor even to temper his rejection with an encouraging, try us again. Boucher emphasises the speed with which Bradbury improved. His first professional appearance comes in 1941, when he's 20, 21 years old. And then by 1944, he's a figure of some importance in the field. And then in 1946, he's selected for Best American Short Stories. And Boucher says that here in 1952... Bradbury is probably the biggest name in fantasy and science fiction, at least as far as the general public is concerned. And then he says it's doubtful whether that reputation is fully deserved. And this is curious, but he tries to clarify it by saying that Bradbury probably is the best writer in science fiction rather than the best writer of science fiction. So in other words, of all the writers in the field, he is one of the best. But most of what he writes isn't science fiction. Boucher then points to Bradbury's story The Lake as being a kind of critical turning point 
in Bradbury's writing, a story which moves away from being derivative and becomes personal. Then Henry Cutner's contribution to Ray Bradbury Review is on Ray's themes, and this is one of the earliest attempts to look for common imagery and ideas that run across Bradbury's fiction. Cutner talks about there usually being the figure of the outsider in Bradbury's stories, and usually the equivalent of a carnival, and often Mars. And he says that there is often nature as opposed to science or technology. And this is quite a good analysis, but obviously being written in 1952, it's based really on the contents of just two books, Dark Carnival and The Martian Chronicles. The books yet to come would add and expand Bradbury's themes quite substantially. I mean, Dandelion Wine would arguably be the one that would open things up the most, simply because it takes us into a new territory. There there had been small-town Bradbury stories before Dandelion Wine, and there, there had been the appearance of a Waukegan-like town in stories like uh, Mars is Heaven. But Dandelion Wine being set entirely within that world of Waukegan 1928 vastly broadens the Bradbury palette beyond where it was in 1952. Bradbury's own next article in Ray Bradbury Review is called Science and Science Fiction, and he uses this as an opportunity to put the record straight. He wants to clarify, once and for all, his position on science. Now, what he's referring to here is Bantam Books and their paperback edition of the Martian Chronicles. And they put on one of those biographical blurbs about the author, uh, and in that they said that he doesn't care for science, and then they quoted him. They had him saying, I don't like what science is doing to the world. I think science is a good thing to escape from. Bradbury was livid. He vehemently denies that he ever said this, and he also said that the thought in this form never entered his head. So it's completely fabricated. And Ray points out that 200,000 copies of this paperback were distributed. And he received some enraged letters from readers. Now, because he complained about it, the quote was removed. So future printings took that quote away, but the damage had been done. And indeed, to this day, you will see Bradbury being referred to as an anti-science writer. And it's largely because that quote on that book had such a huge influence on those who followed, even though the quote was completely fabricated. Now, of course, some of Ray's stories are anti-science or anti-technology, but more of them are not anti-science so much as anti-the misuse of science. And some of his stories are actually gloriously pro-science. And I always point to I Sing the Body Electric. It's primarily a fantasy story, but it does have a science fictional premise, that of the robot grandmother. And if that story isn't pro-science and pro-technology, well, I don't know what is. 
Bradbury's article goes on to say that he is for science, that he's always been in favour of a science that can, and I quote, prolong and beautify our lives and give us comfort, provide us with heat when we are cold, refrigeration when we are warm, penicillin when we are sick, and entertainment when we are lonely. And he says, I believe in radio, television, motion pictures, automobiles, and atomic power. I believe in newspapers, books, and magazines produced by a scientific technology that has grown steadily in the past century. So he's absolutely clear in laying out his position there. He goes on to talk about how some of his stories may give the impression that he is anti-science, but he suggests an alternative quotation that could be attached to him. So he suggests this. He says, I'd like to rewrite that Bantam quotation, and this is how it goes. I don't like what some people are doing with science in the world. I think that such people should be exposed and, if possible, combated. After a variety of other articles and pieces of fiction by various contributors, we get to Ray's article, Where Do You Get Your Ideas? Famously, the most irritating question that can be directed to a writer of science fiction. But Ray explores the question and says that he, he gets his ideas from studying people and also by exploring, and I quote, his own inhibitions, prejudices, hates and loves. And he also talks about considering psychology, especially the psychology of loneliness, which he says is a strong recurring theme in his work. Um, for example, in the story The Lake, uh, a man is suddenly separated from his wife by an incident that takes place. In The Next In Line, a woman is terrified at the remoteness of being in Mexico. And then he specifically refers to the Martian Chronicles as being loneliness squared. Finally, on page 46 of Ray Bradbury Review, we get to the Ray Bradbury Index, where William F. Nolan does a fantastic job in putting together a detailed bibliography, everything that Bradbury had ever published up until that point. Of course, we're talking about a writer, Bradbury, who was in his early 30s when this index was published, and who would go on to write for another 60 years. One little interesting bit appears at the end of the index, and it's what Nolan calls an addenda. And here he's talking about works yet to be published, uh, such as those that Ray himself mentioned in his article. And Nolan says, again, writing in 1952, that to date, all of Bradbury's movie deals have fallen through. Of course, we now know that Ray went on to a pretty good career in Hollywood, but that was all ahead of him at this point. And one other tidbit is that Nolan says that by mid-1952, Bradbury will have set some sort of record for appearances in anthologies, having appeared in over 50 of them. So, when people today, in 2023, are trying to get a sense of the significance, the importance, the impact of the young Ray Bradbury, this is where it is. It's in that incredible number of short stories published across a wide range of magazines, not just confined to the pulps, but appearing in women's magazines, slick magazines, and being selected for year's best collections 
and appearing in a huge range of anthologies. The statistics that Nolan gives shows that at that point in time, 1952, Bradbury had had 114 short stories in print, 37 short short stories, plus 13 articles, 6 novelettes, 2 short novels, 1 radio play and 1 story sold to radio, making a total of 174 pieces. Wow. My own study of the statistics has shown me that across Ray's entire career, 1950 was his peak year for short story publications. And it's interesting that writing around that time, Nolan found the same thing. His statistics show a peak of 24 items published in 1950, dropping to 16 items in 51 and nine items scheduled for 52. Now, Nolan couldn't have known that that dropping off after 1950 would continue and would be seriously disrupted by Ray's taking on the script duties for Moby Dick. So, of course, Nolan's Bradbury Index is of limited use today, but the period of time that it covers is covered remarkably well. Now, I haven't been able to find out how many copies of Ray Bradbury Review were ever distributed, but it doesn't seem to be a particularly rare item, and it clearly was influential on future cataloguers of Bradbury's work, such as Jonathan R. Eller, who is responsible for all of the bibliographic detail in the book Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, which he co-wrote with William F. Tuponts. So that's Ray Bradbury Review, a one-shot fanzine special published by William F. Nolan. So who is William F. Nolan? Well, he's best known as being the co-author of the book Logan's Run, which of course was turned into a film in 1976 and a short-lived TV series. He co-wrote Logan's Run with George Clayton Johnson, and on his own, he also wrote sequels to Logan's Run. But back in the 50s, Nolan was a beginning author. He was active in science fiction fandom, and he was a collector of Bradbury. And although Nolan was writing fiction himself, he didn't become a professional writer until 1956. So Ray Bradbury Review captures William F. Nolan really as a fan who is on the verge of becoming a professional. Bill Nolan lived for 93 years. He passed away in 2021. He wrote prolifically short stories, novels, science fiction, fantasy, horror, mystery. He wrote for comics, he wrote for movies, he wrote for TV... And he wrote a huge amount of non-fiction as well, including a number of biographies. And he also edited maybe a couple of dozen anthologies. And in 1975, he put out a book called The Ray Bradbury Companion, subtitled A Life and Career History, Photolog and Comprehensive Checklist of Writings. And this rather substantial hardcover book is really like a a huge version of Ray Bradbury Review. It has an introduction by Bradbury, it has some articles by Nolan, it has photographs, uh, family photos from Bradbury, 
There's a chronology of Bradbury's life. And then there are facsimiles of various publications, such as Bradbury's first ever appearance as a poet in the Los Angeles High School Anthology of Student Verse for 1937. Nolan also reproduces pages of Bradbury's manuscripts, so he's giving us a, a glimpse into the Bradbury archive. And then there's a comprehensive checklist of all of Bradbury's books up to that point, with details of all the stories within them. It's essentially a massive expansion of Ray Bradbury Review, some 23 years later. Now, the Ray Bradbury Companion is a peculiar book because of its kind of scrapbook nature. But for many years, it was the only way for mere mortals like me to have access to Bradbury's manuscripts. Nowadays, thanks to the Ray Bradbury Centre at Indiana University, scholars can have access to thousands of Bradbury's professional papers. So it's no longer necessary for us to limit ourselves to the odd facsimile reproduction in books like The Companion. But for the longest time, it was an invaluable book, and it remains an important reference to this day. William F. Nolan also published other works related to Bradbury, so there's a couple I'd like to mention here. One is called The Bradbury Chronicles, published in 1991. Now, there are, there are loads of books called The Bradbury Chronicles. It's a, an obvious title for people to grab at. But Nolan's book with that title has the subtitle Stories in Honour of Ray Bradbury. And this was an anthology that Nolan edited with Martin H. Greenberg, and it's a collection of tribute stories. It's a, it's a kind of who's who of science fiction and fantasy literature at that time. So you'll find tribute stories in there by Richard Matheson, Chad Oliver, Charles Beaumont, Richard Christian Matheson, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, Gregory Benford, F. Paul Wilson, Robert Sheckley, Orson Scott Card and William F. Nolan himself. And I'm reminded that after Ray died, there was another tribute volume called Shadow Show, edited by Sam Weller, which did a similar thing. And if you take those two books together, they make a fascinating survey of writers who were influenced by Bradbury and who wished to pay it back with a tribute. The other interesting Nolan book related to Bradbury is simply called Nolan on Bradbury, and this was published in 2013, and it's an attempt to collect together all of Nolan's writings on Bradbury, and this includes a number of short stories that he wrote, influenced by Ray. Uh, there's about eight of them in there, I think. And then Many articles running all the way from 1952 and Ray Bradbury Review right through to 2013. Prior to Nolan on Bradbury, if you wanted to see what Nolan had written about Bradbury, you had to collect together lots of different books and magazines. So when Hippocampus Press brought this volume out, it was a very welcome addition to the About Bradbury bookshelf. So that's Ray Bradbury Review, and its editor and creator, William F. Nolan. And that now brings me to the new Ray Bradbury Review. In 
In the 2000s, those two leading Bradbury scholars, Jonathan R. Eller and William F. Tuponts, found themselves purely by coincidence both working at the same institution, Indiana University, Indianapolis. And they brought their combined skills together with a book, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction. And this was the book that really gave the first detailed account, evidence-based account, if you like, of Ray's writing process. And as you will have heard on previous episodes of this very podcast, John Eller brought to the party his expertise and his knowledge of Bradbury's compositional history, and William F. Tuponts brought a theoretical framework and analysis of the themes, the meanings, the significance of Bradbury's fiction. Now, in working together on that book and other projects, John and Bill found that they had between them a massive collection of Bradbury material, in particular a vast collection of photocopies of Bradbury's papers and a large uh, research library of Bradbury books but also books about science fiction and fantasy and horror, popular culture, and so on. And from that, in a couple of really quite small and cramped offices, they were able to launch the so-called Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. As time went on, the centre grew in size, and it grew massively after Ray died, uh, when they received a huge amount of Ray's professional papers, courtesy of the Bradbury family, and of Ray's principal bibliographer, Don Albright. And today, the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies is known as the Ray Bradbury Centre, and it's now an archive and a museum, taking up much bigger space than it ever had previously. And it also contains a recreation of Ray's basement office. Now, alongside Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, Ella and Tuponts wanted to establish a journal, and they envisaged an annual publication that would be a place for them to publish material on Bradbury, but also somewhere that other scholars and other contributors could write about Bradbury and his work. And so was born the new Ray Bradbury Review. Now, I remember being contacted by Bill Tuponts when the first issue was being prepared, and he shared with me the cover art for that first issue. And I noticed that although it was the first issue of the new Ray Bradbury Review, the cover said Issue 2. And I found this rather odd, and I questioned Bill, and he explained that, well, Issue 1 was Ray Bradbury Review, published by William F. Nolan back in 1952. And since we're continuing on from where Nolan left off, this is going to be Issue 2. Now, I suggested that might be rather confusing for librarians and archivists, if only because the two publications have different titles. Nolan's was Ray Bradbury Review. This was going to be the new Ray Bradbury Review. And since it has a different title, surely it should start with a new numbering, shouldn't it? And Bill thought about this, and the next time he sent me a revised version of the cover, it said... Issue number one. Now, the new Ray Bradbury Review appeared sporadically for a number of years in a sort of trade paperback size uh, edition, a print edition, published through Kent State University Press. 
and it ran for about six issues, edited by Bill or John at different times, and with a couple of issues guest edited. And I guest edited the Fahrenheit 451 film issue, for example. But by about 2019, Bill Tuponce had retired, and he later passed away, and John really didn't have the time to continue with the journal, what with all his other publishing commitments, which included the three-volume biography of Ray. And so I volunteered to take it over. I was also aware of the increasing economic difficulty of putting out print versions of journals. Uh, such a thing is really always going to have a limited audience, and therefore it's likely to have a small print run, and therefore, well, it's likely to be expensive for the average reader. And unless it's a high-impact academic journal, it's going to be difficult for college libraries to justify taking it on an economic standpoint. So being aware of the general direction in which academic journals were headed, I proposed that we take the new Ray Bradbury Review and put it online as an open-access, free-to-read journal. And we did hope to do that in 2020, which would have been an ideal time, given that it was Bradbury's centenary year. But of course, Covid. John and I were both very busy during 2020, dealing with various celebrations of Bradbury. And to be honest, I think given that most of life was put on hold in 2020 and everything went online, we both probably did more Bradbury outreach in that year than either of us has done before or since. Anyway, once the pandemic was out of the way, we took steps to bring that first online edition to life. And indeed, it came to fruition this year, 2023. It's been out for a couple of months at this point, and if you haven't taken a look, well, go and have a look. Just Google it, The New Ray Bradbury Review, and you'll find issue 7 of the journal is online for free and with a variety of articles, some of them academic, some of them not so much. And although I'm, I'm trying to steer the new Ray Bradbury review along academic lines, I like to think that there will always be a place there for non-academic study of Bradbury. Nolan's Ray Bradbury review contained appreciations from fans and professional writers and editors and the earliest print issues of the new Ray Bradbury Review took the Nolan scrapbook concept from the Ray Bradbury Companion, manuscript pages and snippets of unpublished material, and interspersed that with scholarly articles and interspersed that with articles which were generally appreciations of Bradbury and his work. There is one thing that is slightly different with the new Ray Bradbury Review online, and that is I suggested that we deliberately try to align it with the four key values of the Ray Bradbury Centre, and those are to do with literacy, libraries, advocacy of space exploration, and freedom of the imagination. And so for at least the first four online issues, we will theme the journal around one of those four values. And after those four issues, the review, I hope, will have developed something of an ethos which will be recognisable to its readers, and that will then feed into future study of Bradbury. 
So if you are a Bradbury scholar, you should consider writing for the review. We've just closed the call for papers for the next issue, issue 8, but when issue 8 appears in 2024, it will contain the next call for papers for issue 9. And I am trying to ramp up the frequency of publication uh, of the new Ray Bradbury review. I want to get it back to at least an annual edition, which was always the intention and the ambition uh, when it was launched by Bill Tuponce and John Eller. And longer term, I'd like to get the journal up to appearing twice a year, or maybe three times a year. But to be able to do that, we need to have sufficient material. So we need more writers. So if you are a scholar, or you know somebody who is, get in touch. So way back in 1952, William F. Nolan started this whole business of critical evaluation of the work of Ray Bradbury. Nolan continued to be a friend of Ray's and a promoter of Bradbury throughout the rest of his life, and he influenced the next generation of scholars, the Ellers, the Tuponces, and little old me. Incidentally, I did meet Bill Nolan on two occasions, and I had very, very brief conversations with him. One was at Ray's 90th birthday party, which was held at a bookshop in Glendale, California, and the other was, I think, the very next day, uh, the day after the party, when I was at Ray's house and William F. Nolan came in. Now, I was just a fly on the wall. <laughs> I, I just stood back and listened. But I heard some interesting conversation between Bill and Ray about the old days, and I can't now, for the life of me, remember anything specific that they were talking about. But I do remember that they were clearly having fun in each other's company. So, thanks to William F. Nolan, indirectly, he got all of this Bradbury scholarship started. And thanks to you for listening. And I'll see you next time on Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100